0: 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verse 1 to 15. After David was settled in his, pal- in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of Seder, where the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under tent. Nathan replied to David, Whatever you have in mind, do it, for God is with you. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought Israel up out of Egypt to, his, to this day. I have moved from one tent site to another, from one dwelling place to another. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their leaders, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why have you not built me a house of Seder? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them. Anymore, as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all your enemies. I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your, of- your offspring to succeed you one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him, as I took it away from your predecessor. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. Nathan reported to David all the words of this entire revelation. Um, for our next passage, shall we turn to Acts chapter 7, verse 44 to 50. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. After receiving the tabernacle, our ancestors under Joshua brought it with them when they took the land from the nations God drew out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. However, the Mosai does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? This is the word of the Lord.
1: Ransford, thank you very much uh, for, for reading that for us. And good morning and welcome to Christchurch Ballam. A uh, few people I don't recognize, it's wonderful uh, to have you with us uh, here today. Uh, my name's Andy, I'm the pastor here at Christchurch Ballam. And today, you're coming on right day because today we are beginning this new series in the book of Chronicles. We began it last summer and we got up to chapter 16 and now we're continuing on in chapter 17. And uh, this week I spent most of the week in Rwanda and on the flight back last night I made the decision not to preach on the entirety of chapter 17. We're only going to do the first half so you see on the little um, handout on your, the back of your service sheet we're only going to do the first point. You might be relieved to hear otherwise it would be a very long sermon <laughs> but um, I thought we'd, um, we'd just do half of that. Shall I pray? Oh Father God, thank you so much, as we've been seeing today, of how loved we are because of Jesus Christ. And I ask Lord, as we've been singing, that all our trust, all our trust, would be in His blood, in what He has done. I pray, Father, that you would relieve us from the burden of thinking it's down to us or it's on us. Help us today to think less of ourselves and more of our saviour, more of our king. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Um, recently Hannah and I moved from Netflix over to Now TV, about the same price. And um, we've enjoyed watching this series. It's called House of the Dragon. Hands off if you've seen this or, or perhaps heard of this. It's advertised uh, everywhere really. And um, it, it's, a, it's a fantasy series. Uh, I don't know if you like fantasy, but it, it's very, very good. Uh, King Viserys is this guy. He is desperate to secure the legacy of his house, his house, House Targaryen. And, and, but in order to do, do that, in order to secure the legacy of his house, he needs to do a number of different things. He has to sire a male heir because the moment he just has girls and girls aren't any good in this setting. He needs a male heir. Um, he also has to sort of manage his rather psychotic brother. But at the same time, he needs to keep his allegiance. He also needs to keep up various different political alliances. And after his wife dies and childbirth, yet another girl, he, he needs to um, marry again. And He has to marry politically. Uh, he also has to quell various rebellions all across the different parts of the seven kingdoms. It's exhausting being king. And it's clear that all this effort to secure his throne is killing him. Literally killing him. In the very first episode, he, he cuts his hand on, on the iron throne made out of swords, and the, the cut gets infected. And across each successive episode, you see this flesh eating disease literally devour him. His affliction is almost a metaphor for his house, his drive to establish and secure his own legacy. Ironically, it eats them alive. Now, you might not be into a fantasy series, but I begin with that because I think it reflects a desire which all of us have. Which is to secure our own legacy. We all have this impulse, don't we, to leave some mark on the world before we leave it. Some of us here we kind of look to our careers, don't we? The business we might build, the money we might make, we look to our careers. Others of us we look to our families, the spouse we might marry, that the children which we might raise, the home that we might build. Others of us we look to our accomplishments, or to our art, or to our status. Think for yourself. How are you seeking to secure? Your legacy, What mark will you leave behind? But here's the thing: if our identity is all bound up with securing our own legacy, if it's upon me to establish the House of Palmer <laughs> Will it either make me unbearably proud if I succeed. or more likely crushingly insecure when I don't because sometimes the business fails sometimes the career trajectory plateaus sometimes children don't come and sometimes they don't turn out how do you expect sometimes the life narrative which has been set for us by our parents and grandparents sometimes it doesn't come to fulfillment. What's the solution? Well, you might expect me to say the solution to this problem is to change our ambitions. You might expect me to say that instead of establishing our own legacy and, and building our own house and, and, and our own little kingdom, instead, try to establish God's legacy, build his house, secure his kingdom. Now, of course, as Christians, if you're a follower of Jesus here today, we do have a part in all of those things. But again, we've got to tread with caution here because ministry is a dangerous place to locate our identity. Take it from me as a pastor. If my security is all bound up with my ministry performance, whether that's my ability to preach or ability to grow the church, or ability to secure St. Stephen's building for our own. If my identity is all bound up in how those things are going, I will swing between pride and crushing insecurity, depending on how things are going. And so it will be with whatever your ministry is. If it is upon me to build God's house and to secure God's kingdom, like Kinvisceris, there's burden will eat me alive. And you probably all know pastors who've burned out, often because they felt this burden to establish God's kingdom. If you weren't here when we began looking at this book of Chronicles last summer, you'll know this is the very final book to be written in the Old Testament. I know it's in the middle of our Old Testaments and our Bibles, but when it was originally written, it was right at the end of the Old Testament, the final book of the Hebrew canon. It's a retelling, if you like, of all of Israel's story for those who'd been in exile in Babylon, but have now come back to the promised land. Theirs was a time when they felt incredibly small and pathetic, when they felt weak. They were living under foreign Persian rule. They had no king. They had a tiny little temple. And as a result, some had given up hope of all these things that God had promised. Whereas others were desperate, they felt this enormous burden to try and establish or reestablish the kingdom for themselves, whatever the means might be. By retelling Israel's story, the chronicle is is getting his generation to re-examine their foundations. It's a bit like this image behind me. It's Robin Robin Severs kindly uh, designed for us. You see this like half-built building on top, halfway through construction, pretty small, pretty un- unimpressive. And and again, that's what their kingdom looked like at this time. But what the chronicle is doing is to look down, and so you can see, or maybe you can't see, but the the foundations go. Incredibly deep. If you see how deep the foundations are, you get an idea of how great this kingdom will one day be. So here's the good news, if I can set it up for you this morning. Here's the good news for us today it is not, it is not upon you to establish your future. It is not upon us to establish God's kingdom. Rather, your future has already been established by God's forever king. That's the one point I want to make today. <laughs> Would you look down with me at verse 1? I hope you've got a Bible open. Uh, we're in 1 Chronicles. It's page 313. 313 and look at verse 1 with me. After David was settled in his palace, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar, while the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under a tent. Now you might remember, in the, in the previous few chapters, David has managed to successfully bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. This sort of wooden golden box kind of represented God's rule amongst them, God's presence among his people. And, and as a result, God has clearly blessed David. Here he is living in a palace in luxury. But David sort of looks down the road and he kind of sees a mismatch between his situation and, and, and God's sort of situation. Here he is living in this permanent quality uh, accommodation, cedar being quality wood, and was god god's kind of living in a in, in a in a tent under a curtain? poor god so david's solution he has a great idea it's, David's solution is not to sort of downgrade his own accommodation and start living in a tent as well he doesn't, i don't think he even consider that thought um, rather, he wants to build God a house like his. A permanent, quality home. And it's interesting, in the ancient Near East, kings often built temples to their gods. It was their way of saying, thanks for blessing me and my rule. And also, sort of, a bit of propaganda, showing everyone how great your kingdom is. Because look, my god's with me, permanently, at a quality establishment. So here's uh, the, uh, the remnants of the temple built to Melkart. By Hiram of Tyre, the island of Tyre, just off the coast of Israel. So a contemporary of David. So maybe David looked at his mate Hiram of Tyre and his temple to Melchizedek and he thought, hmm, maybe I could do that too. It's possible that that's where David got that idea from. So first, he, he comes up with this plan, and, but first he has to check it by the prophet, doesn't he? Uh, so and, and the, so he asked the prophet, this is what I'm going to do. In verse 2, Nathan replies, do whatever's in your mind. Do whatever's in your mind. God's with you. But actually, Nathan's sort of shoot from the hip response is wrong. It's incorrect. Verse 3. But that night, the word of God came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. You are not the one to build me a house to dwell in. This is the only recorded time in the ancient Near East where a king said to a god, I'm going to build you a house. And the god goes, You're all right, I'm, I'm fine, thanks. No, thank you. A million dollar question is, Why not? Why not? Well, God's going to tell us more, reveal more of his reasons in successive chapters, but a, a few reasons are given here. I've got three of them. They'll be up on the screen. The first one is this God does not need a building to dwell with his people look at verse 5 i have not dwelt in a house from the day i brought egypt sorry the day i brought israel up out of egypt to this day i've moved from one tent site to another from one dwelling place to another wherever i've moved with all the israelites did i ever say to any of their leaders whom i commanded to shepherd my people why have you not built me a cedar house to live in? And this fits with what we heard from our second reading from, from Stephen just before he's martyred. It fits with what he said. God does not need a permanent building in order to dwell with his people. That's because God is the omnipresent creator. You can't domesticate him. You can't sort of control him like the pagans do, like Hiram of Tyre tried to do with his god Melkart. You know, limit him to a particular locale. You can't pin him down to a particular location. Say, God is with us here. Hang on, but He's not with us out here. But He's definitely in here, not out here. Did you see? You can't do that because He is the Creator God. You can't domesticate Him. But more positively, if God is not tied down to a particular location, it means he's always been with his people. Wherever they have gone, he has gone. So that when they were living in, in tents in the wilderness, God was with them in a tent in the wilderness wherever they needed protection, and whenever they needed protection, he was always right in the middle of them, traveling with them wherever they go. Now, that was true back then in the Old Testament times, when God's presence was symbolized by the Ark of the Covenant. But it's just as much true here today. As Christians, people who follow Jesus, God is always with us, by his spirit. So there you are tomorrow on a Monday morning, struggling at work with your colleagues, or your boss. God is with you by his spirit. Uh, if you're at home struggling to be patient uh, with your children, he is with you by his spirit. If you're there with your mates on a Monday night playing football, struggling to share something of Jesus with them, he is with you. By his spirit. Now, although we do experience God differently, don't we? When we gather together like this, we experience God qualitatively better way than just on our own. But we should not think that God is more here than he is out there. Jesus promised his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And neither should we think, and this is particularly pertinent for us as a church right now, neither should we think that God needs us to have a permanent building in order for him to operate amongst us. We've been uh, meeting in this school here for the last 20 years. And God has been at work amongst us. God has met with us. God has spoken to us by his word. God has been leading people to saving faith in Jesus Christ this ground is not consecrated. We have no stained windows. In fact, we have no windows. <laughs> apart from this one here. Is someone trying to come in at the moment? I don't know. Maybe let them in. Um, so we have no windows. We have no natural light. It's brilliant. And, uh, and yet God is still with us. We are not a lesser church because we do not have our own building. Although it would be nice to have. If God never even thought to ask any of his judges to build him a permanent home, David shouldn't feel that he somehow failed as a king if he fails, if he's not the one to build this house. Let me say that again. If, if God has never asked any of his judges to build him a permanent home, David should not feel as king he's somehow failed. If he's not the one to build this house. And you need to remind me, if we don't get this bid, Andy, you've not failed if we've not managed to secure our own building. It'd be great to have St. Stephen's, wouldn't it? But we don't need to have St. Stephen's. The Lord's second reason for not wanting David to build a house is slightly more subtle. I wonder if you, you, you can follow it. God doesn't need David to secure his future among his people. Rather, it's the other way around. David needs God to secure his people's future in him. Verse 7. Now then, tell my servant David this is what the Lord Almighty, literally, the Lord of armies, says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I've, I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name like the names of the greatest men on earth. So if there was a danger, if there was a danger of David thinking, I've arrived, I'm living in a palace, all my enemies are subdued, and I've got this great idea to house God in my midst. If David was tempted to think he's arrived, God kind of kindly gives him a bit of, a, a bit of a reality check. David, you were once nothing, a mere shepherd boy in the wilderness. I was the one who made you something. I was the one who appointed you as ruler. I was the one who cut off your enemies. I was the one who will make your name great. David, I don't need you to establish my future among your people. In fact, you need me to secure my people's future. But this doesn't mean David's a complete irrelevance, does it? No, he's integral to it. Um, you kind of remember, if those of us have been doing the Bible overview uh, last term, you remember those big promises which God gave to Abraham? He promised him hundreds of years before, you're going to have a vast people. Uh, you're going to have a secure land. Uh, your, God's presence is going to be amongst you. All of, these pre- all of these blessings, it seems, are going to come into effect because of the king. The king is going to mediate all of these blessings to God's people. It's a bit like when I'm watching rugby with my boys. Whenever the rugby's on, um, I've got Levi under one arm, Caleb under the other. And uh, we're shouting the TV. And, and when England are winning against uh, Scotland or France, let's say Scotland, it's more likely. Um, when, when England are winning against Scotland, we're shouting, we are winning. And Caleb and, and, and Levi are jumping up and down saying, we're winning, we're winning. Are we though? Because we're not doing anything. We're, we're sat on a sofa at home. I'm drinking a beer. They've got a fizzy pop. And we're not doing anything whilst we're watching Billy Vunipola, Billy, Billy Vunipola or Ellis Genge um, doing all the hard work on the pitch. Are we winning? Well, yes. Because they are winning. Because they represent us. They represent England. And when they win... We win. So it is with Israel's kings. They mediate all of God's blessings to us. Look at verse nine. Just see how it follows. Makes the, the same point. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also subdue all of your enemies. Do you see? But if David is blessed, then the people are blessed. If David is secure, then the people are secure. Do you see how one relates to the other? And in the same way that David was once nothing, just a shepherd boy in the wilderness. So God's people were nothing. A nowhere people living in the wilderness. But now through their king, they will be planted like the Garden of Eden. Through their king, they will be established. Through their king, they will be secure and all of their enemies subdued. Notice that this is not a deal. God does not say to David, if you obey me, then I'll bless you and your people. This is a promise, a one way promise. It's not like what God says to Adam and Eve in the garden. Keep my law and then you can stay here. It's not like what God said to his people Israel uh, in the Mosaic covenant saying, keep my law and you can stay in the land. No, this is different. God says through this king, I will bless you. No caveats. No conditions. so it is with us today just consider how you've been blessed if you're someone following jesus just consider the blessings which are yours every single blessing that you enjoy has been mediated to you through your king that should give us a great measure of humility it is not because of your academic brilliance that you worked out all the facts and decided to follow Jesus because it's true. That might be the case, but it's not down to you. It's not because of your brilliant ministry gifts that your small group, that your connect group is growing and flourishing. It might be in part because of that, but it is God who's doing that. I discovered recently that the, the word humility uh, and the word humanity have the same root. Um, I, did, I learned this recently, that it, the, the Latin root is hummus, not hummus like, you know, you eat with, um, as everyone in Balaam eats with, um, <laughs> um, with pita bread. Not hummus, but the hummus meaning dirt, ground, dust. Adam was made out of the dust, out of nothing. And because of his sin will one day return to the dust. Well, that's all of us, friends. By nature on our own, we are nothing. And one day we will return to nothing. We've got to have humility. All that we have has been given to us. All that we have in Christ has been given to us. But ironically, there's, there's greater security in humility. Because if it was at least in part us, then we'd have reason for pride but it's zero part us, 100% God. I will do this, he says to David. Well, here's the third reason God doesn't want David uh, to build him a temple. The third reason is this, up on the screen. This man-made house is just a picture of the eternal house, which God wants to build. Uh, follow with me, verse 10. I declare to you, halfway through verse 10, I declare to you that the Lord will build a house for you. When your days are over and you go to be with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you. One of your sons and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for me and I will establish his throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessor, Saul. And I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. His throne will be established forever. I love it. Do you get the irony? David won't be the one to build a house for the Lord. No, no, no. The Lord says... I'm going to be the one to build your house. I'm going to be the one to build your legacy and establish your future. We can't confuse the two houses. The house for God and the house which God is going to build. See, God says to David, look, when you, when you die and you are going to die, like Adam, you're going to return to the dust. Another king is going to come along one of your offspring, one of your seed, he will build me a house. A sign that God's going to establish your kingdom forever. He will be adopted as a son. He will always be loved. I'll never remove my love from him. Now we might expect, with, kind of with, the, with the benefit of hindsight, we might expect the chronicler's readers, right at the end of the Old Testament, we might expect them to kind of know who the person being referred to is, don't we? They, they kind of know the story. They, they know who the, the promised person is. Uh, you may remember back in chapter three, uh, when we looked at it last year, uh, the Chronicler begins his book with a big genealogy, a big family tree, tracing David's ancestry. And so the Chronicler's generation, they, they knew who eventually built the house. Of course, it was Solomon. It was Solomon. He, he, beat the genera- he built the house a generation after David. But was it Solomon? Because he died, it wasn't quite forever. And also he did sin against God and did end up sort of cracking the kingdom in two. And then they went into exile and you know, it wasn't quite fit. But it's Zerubbabel, yeah, maybe it's Zerubbabel then. Because after the exile, Zerubbabel, again, from David's line, he came along and, 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 and he, he rebuilt the temple. All right, it's, it's a bit smaller and nowhere near as impressive as the previous temple. But Zerubbabel, surely he's the guy, but no, he dies too. And his line kind of falls into obscurity. The promise here seems so much bigger, doesn't it? Than any individual human king. The word forever in this passage is repeated eight times. God's love will always be on him forever. God will establish his throne forever. And it, just think of any human house. I don't know how old the house is or the flat is that you were built in. I don't know when you expect one day it's going to crumble. But the house which the temple which Solomon built, it did collapse. It wasn't a forever house. The house which Zerubbabel built, it did collapse. It was not a forever house. The house God has in mind would be permanent. It would last for all eternity. The Chronicles' generation... They knew that David was just a prototype for one to come. That is why they were chasing this genealogy, this family tree. That's why at the beginning of uh, Matthew and Luke's gospel it begins with genealogies because they were still looking for the one, the promised line of David. We can't confuse the model for the real thing. It's a bit like Zoolander. Have you seen, hands up? if you've seen the film Zoolander? Of course you have. Derek Zoolander, a ridiculously good looking but rather stupid supermodel. He becomes rather successful and he's shown a scale replica of a school which would be built in his own name. He takes time to carefully examine it. There he is, using the blue steel look. But all of a sudden, he in a fit of rage, he picks up the model and smashes it on the floor. What is this? He shouts. A school for ants? It's nowhere near big enough for children. It needs to be at least three times bigger. He confused the model for the reality. Also, in this passage, we're left looking for someone so much bigger, a house so much greater than anything Solomon or Zerubbabel could build. The chroniclers post-exilic community, they didn't, they didn't have a king. They had a temple, but it was tiny. And the reason they were still tracing the king's ancestry is because they were still looking for the one who would fulfill this promise. But of course, you all know who that person is, don't you? Friends, you all know who that person is, don't you? At 400 years after this book was written, the descendant of David was born. It was Jesus Christ. He was born in obscurity and humility, but he is heaven's eternal forever king. He is the creator God who, who entered this world, who, who tabernacled amongst us, as we read in John chapter 1. He is the savior God who, who went to the cross and his body was laid in the dust of death. Why? Also that God might live with us forever and ever so if you're here today, maybe looking in on Christian things, you've got a lot of questions about what Christianity is about, what it means to follow Jesus. Please stop trying to build your own kingdom. Stop trying to establish your own name. You will only be disappointed. You will only fail. And in terms of God, stop trying to think that you can do anything to try and achieve a win, his approval for you. Everything has been done for you. Every blessing has been mediated for you through the King, Jesus Christ. So here's a question. If you're not yet following Jesus, will you make him your King? You can even do that today. But for the Christian here, perhaps you're feeling the burden, feeling the kingdom of God is upon your shoulders. Maybe the ministry you're involved in, you're thinking, is this all upon me? Well, here's the good news, friends. You don't need to think that. You are not the one to establish God's kingdom, to build his house, the temple, the church. I keep need to being reminded of this. You need to keep reminding me of this. God has it perfectly in hand. The kingdom has been established by God through his king and not by me. I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but most of us here, no, let me go further, all of us here will most likely not be remembered in the history books. The business which you're building will probably most likely fold. Your accomplishments most likely will be forgotten. Your great-grandchildren probably won't even know your name. But, friends, if you are following this eternal king, you are wrapped up in his future. Which means you have an eternal legacy. You will leave a mark on this planet. You will never be forgotten. Why? Because Jesus has promised that the meek will inherit the earth. So look to him. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for how deep the foundations go. Thank you for your promises. And Lord, even if things look weak now, unstable now, disappointing now, help us to believe these promises and see how they've already been fulfilled in Christ and how the kingdom will come. Empower for your glory. Amen.